Hi, I'm Brett Samuels, and this is the Open Mic Marketing Podcast, the second of a series of podcasts and coming to you from our brand new Hearts Podcast Studio. In each episode, I get to talk to inspirational guests, as well as incorporating marketing insights and tips to give you the tools to battle through what is undoubtedly one of the most difficult times in our business history. Because of the pandemic, online selling, virtual meetings and social media marketing have greatly accelerated in terms of the impact that they're having on our lives. And it's my aim via these podcasts to provide you with a greater degree of artfulness in dealing with the new landscape in which we live. Last week, we covered cutting through the crap for social media success. And today, with Law Performance Marketing Manager Emily Winter, we'll attack automation in pay-per-click and whether machines are better than humans. But first up, we're joined by Susan Heaton-Wright, who is a much-vaunted superstar communicator. Susan is here to help us unravel the skills of virtual presentation style and substance. Susan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It's lovely to have you here in the studio. Susan, you've developed the superstar communicator methodology. Can you tell me the areas that people should be focusing on to become more effective communicators? Now, my superstar communicator methodology is based on five areas that I identified were essential for spoken communication. However, actually, they work for written as well. And the five areas are audience, really understanding who you're speaking to to make the maximum impact, the purpose of you speaking, listening to your audience, content, and certainly I work with people on ways that you can construct the content so that it's very focused and effective for a listener to take on board. Preparation, which includes practicing, but also managing your fear because we all get a little bit nervous before we're speaking in presentations or a podcast like this, (laughs) or if you are pitching, and performance, which includes your nonverbal communication. If you're speaking virtually, it could include how you look, how you appear, your gestures, your facial expressions, and then the voice, because the voice, we can make it really interesting or we could make it very, very boring. (laughs) So those are the five areas. That sounds great. And obviously... With the way the world is at the moment, most of our interactions are being done online for better or worse. I just wanted to touch on, you mentioned around your nonverbal actions. And of course, that's really easy to pick those up when we're together, but really hard when you're online. So what's your advice to people when they're in those online situations? Well, first of all, switch on your video. I'm astonished by the number of people that are in calls and don't have their video switched on. I mean, duh. But also make sure that the sound is good, that you've not got lots of background noise, that you have got a light on your face so that people can light that up. Make sure that you're actually basically looking at the screen so if you're looking down there and you're clearly looking at your phone rather than the conversation it is a bit of a clue but also be aware of your facial expressions because we can gain a lot from that 
So we're in the studio today. I yeah. mean, one of, one of the first times I'm out and about <laughs> since lockdown way. And you can pick up my facial expressions. Okay. If we were doing this remotely, I'm sure that we would be doing it with screens and you would be able to pick up some nuances from that. Also gestures. I'm like an Italian traffic policeman <laughs> normally, but actually we do use our hands to emphasise certain things. And don't be afraid of that. Uh, I think that's really good advice. And certainly for us, I mean, we predominantly did most of our meetings were face to face because I always felt that you can build a better relationship yes. with your clients when you're together. And I think most of us feel that like we've been thrown in the deep end when it comes to video conferencing. So what are your top tips for making an impact in a video call? First of all, doing a lot of preparation beforehand. So, for example, I had a pitch for some work this time last year. I can't believe it. It's a year ago. But I did some preparation by finding out who I was speaking to, finding out a little bit about her previous work, where she'd studied, if we had any mutual contacts. It just so happened that she had studied at the same university as my uncle and he had been professor of neurology at the time. Now, he's not there now, but immediately we had some connection and it's building that business relationship, isn't it? And so really taking the time to work out what you're going to say, what the purpose is of the meeting. Because if you're just going to have a little chat, you're not going to make an impact. But if you're focused, perhaps thinking about three things that you need to contribute that will make a real difference. So when you set those objectives, is that a mental setting of those objectives or is that setting out at the start of the call, these are the things that I'd like to cover today, are you happy with that? Or is that more an internal thing? It could be both. It could be that before a meeting you email and say, I'd like to discuss A, B and C. Or you could do it right at the beginning of the meeting, almost to facilitate the meeting. But quite often, my clients are working in a bigger team. So they might be in a meeting with a few people. And some people do struggle to get heard, to make an impact. And I say, think of three things that you can say, as well as if somebody else has said something, an opinion that you agree with, say, well, I agree with Brett. That's a great idea. And I believe we should go ahead with that to make sure that you've been heard. I think it's a really great point. I did a meeting recently and one of my account managers said, oh, Brett, you, you know, you really thought on your feet really well in that meeting. And I said, well, no, everything I said there was prepared. Of course, there has to be a bit of ad-libbing and going with the flow, but I think a lot of it is down to preparation. I think that the big challenge, certainly I find at the moment, is so many back-to-back -back meetings yes. one after another it's hard to prepare for those whereas prior to this you'd think oh I've got a meeting in two weeks time right I'll earmark that day and I'll spend some time getting ready for it now it just seems like they're one after the other it's really hard to prepare it's very very challenging and that's the one thing that my clients and contacts are saying the number of meetings that they have how fatigued they are and then they need to do their to-do list outside hours. So the reality is that they're working longer hours. I wonder if people are still having meetings for the sake of them to reassure themselves. 
whether they are using virtual meetings in the wrong way. So my husband, he's a chartered surveyor, and there are meetings that are clearly project management meetings that possibly some of that information could be shared via WhatsApp or Slack or some other system so that that information could be shared, not discussed on the day. So, for example, if you think of accountants, if it was a number of spreadsheets, you could distribute that beforehand and ask everybody to comment on it rather than having that on the screen and discussing that for half an hour and everybody getting really, really tired because our brain is not able to take on board that detailed information over a screen in the same way. And then what happens is that our brain doesn't like being tired, switches off, you probably start thinking about your shopping list or when you're going to do your next run, what time you'll get for it. And then because the brain doesn't like gaps, it fills it in with what it thinks the information is. Do you think that's been born out of this quick switch to a virtual environment and that will change as we get used to it and evolve? Or do you think we need to do a lot of work now to try and set the right topics and content for the calls that we have? We've been doing this for over a year now, so it's not new. And one of my missions over the last year has been to challenge people to facilitate these meetings in another way, to first of all ask what the purpose is. Should everybody be on the meeting or could they have the information sent to them? Could they be briefed afterwards? Is it really a discussion between two people? In which case, could they have a telephone conversation instead and not involve everybody else? But also the whole idea of running the meeting. You know, when we're in face-to-face meetings... We have a situation where there is the nonverbal communication going on. You notice if somebody's leaning in and wanting to make a contribution. That's more difficult in a virtual setting, particularly if you mute everybody. So setting new ground rules such as you only have one minute to contribute. Perhaps the noisiest person that you know that's in the meeting, having them as the timekeeper. Giving them a role always helps, but also letting everybody know what's going to be discussed beforehand and trying to keep it to a 30 minute or maximum 50 minute. And then there's 10 minutes for people to go and have a break, prepare for the next meeting. So it's really thinking about how you structure these things a lot more. I really like the idea of having 50 minutes instead of an hour. Your kind of natural inclination always put the hour in someone's diary, but actually putting it in for 50 length, letting people kind of have 10 minutes and just to compose themselves for the next one. Or you do put it in as an hour you say it's going to be 50 minutes and then it stops and then nothing else creeps into the diary in that time. That's very good good advice. Susan, I just want to go back on a, a couple of points that you made earlier. So one was around when you're in a big group on a call and, and I've, I've experienced this being on a, a call with a number of people but also I've done workshops as well with a yes. number of people so what's your advice to people who maybe aren't as extroverted when they're on their calls? I'm an introvert and a lot of people I work with are introverts as well 
getting back to the idea of preparing three things to contribute, but also making sure you use the chat as well to make sure that the facilitator knows that you want to contribute, but also to add your opinions to the chat so that hopefully they will be picked up. So either you can contribute or that the chat will be recorded as well as a separate conversation. Try to be as proactive as you can be. Again, that goes back to preparation for, yes. the, for the meetings, having those three things to say. When I think about when I started my career, I, I was an account manager, and you're often dealing with meetings where there's very senior people. So what would be your advice to junior members of the team who maybe feel a bit out of their depth on a call? That is a really, really good question. I always say to people that it is absolutely okay to ask if you can shadow a more senior person to see the way that they prepare and the way that they deal with account management or any other meeting with very senior people. But also, there is a type of communication, a very good friend of mine called Joe McCormack called brief communication. And this really applies very much to junior people because when we don't know very much we can often try and talk too much or big ourselves up when in fact the best thing to do is to listen and keep focused and his idea is that you need to say less to make more impact. It's a fascinating point I can see that both ways so I think listening is Yes. The most important skill to have because you get so much out of that from meetings or calls or, you know, pitches or whatever it is. Being able to listen is a real skill. But at the same time, I can remember going to a meeting. This was a long time ago and I won't say who the client was. But I remember the client coming up to me after the meeting and saying, I don't know why you bought him. He's just not contributed the whole meeting. What was the point of him being here? He would say, well, I was really listening. I was taking everything down. But actually, it was quite a poor experience for the client. So Exactly. And that's a really interesting point. I'll try to remember all of the points that (laughs) I need to do that. First of all, you need to actively listen. If you are taking notes you're the note keeper, you are no longer part of the meeting. You are in a secondary role and you want to make sure that you are an active person within that. So the idea of having three things that you say is really, really important. Even if you're repeating what your colleague says or repeating back what the client says, it just shows that you are in the room rather than the note taker. So rather than kind of head down, furious note taking, head up, engaged, looking round. Absolutely. Being involved, showing that you're meant to be at the table. Now, my husband, again, I, I need to be a little bit careful, but he said that there have been occasions when he has had a meeting with a lawyer and there are four or five lawyers in the room, one of which is taking notes three of them silent and he questioned why all of those people were in the room because he was being billed for all of those so as a client he could say you know what is the point I could have brought somebody in to do the note-taking myself it's adding value and adding value is by almost performing and I don't mean jazz handy but just showing that you're actively in the conversation and you deserve to be around the table 
just going back as well around fatigue. So, I, I mean, I've felt that with so many calls, by the end of the week, I can hardly see because my eyes are so sore. I feel just drained from, from yes. it all. What's your advice to try and avoid that video call fatigue? Just for anybody who hasn't heard this, the CEO of Citigroup in UK has said, no Zoom calls internally on a Friday. We need to have a break from that. Obviously, if it's to clients, that's understandable. Also, thinking about reasonable working hours. She's not expecting people to make up their time in the evenings and have unrealistic working hours per week, which I think fantastic that a main organisation, a major organisation is saying that, which is a contrast to some other companies. I think that you need to be proactive in looking at your calendar. I know one of the problems is that people can put things in your calendar, but if it's at all possible at the end of each day, to think, oh gosh, I've got these meetings here. Right, I'm going to put a buffer in there so that I can have a sandwich. So really being proactive. I don't know if on your calendar you can have an alert when any new things are put in so that then you can quickly put a buffer before and after so nothing else creeps in. And also ask those questions, is it really necessary to have that meeting? Could it be a series of emails? Could we just WhatsApp? There are other ways that you can communicate. That kind of control over diaries has been so important with the current situation. I certainly find everything is a lot more immediate now because for me, prior to this, I was traveling a lot, seeing clients. We have a lot of international clients. I was flying around and people would have to book things in kind of two or three weeks in advance, whereas everyone knows you're at home now or or kind of your your local. So the meetings just get put in less than 24 hours in advance a, a lot of the time. So I think that's good advice trying to block things out so that you can get that time that you need. Definitely. But also, when we were in the office, and we will be back into the office, even if it's in a partial way, we would jump in a car to go to a client's or we would walk from one office to another and have a little break, even if that was 10 minutes that you could just recharge your battery. And that's not happening now. So if you can be proactive in putting those buffers in, that will help. And Susan, what's your thoughts on flexible working? Because I'm hearing that more and more as a topic, it seems to be on everyone's agenda now. So what what are your thoughts on? I think it's great because people have discovered that life is much easier than spending three hours a day on a train. However, for some people, they really, really do crave being in the office and being around other people. And there are those water cooler moments, aren't there, where some magic, some creativity can really happen from just a random conversation that can lead to some very interesting thought. So I think the leaders of organisations need to consider all of these things, the concerns individuals might have about coming back to the office. Oh, gosh, I'm going to be surrounded by all of these people all of a sudden. I'm not used to it. To those people who love being surrounded by people, could it be rather like the first day of secondary school? Do you remember this? That 
the term before you went into the school and you got to know a few people you knew where the loos were and you knew where the gym was and all of those things whether there needs to be a reorientation day just so that people can feel happy and not stressed about going into the office and just catching up with people I think that would be really beneficial to everyone wouldn't it it's been such a long time that people have been out and prior to this we had 55 people all buzzing around all day and I think going from being sat at home to that would be quite a kind of shock to the system Definitely. for everyone so yeah that's that's good advice we've talked a bit about the way to communicate how people can communicate better I'd like to give you three scenarios if I may and things that I would assume we've all experienced over the last 12 months and just to see what your advice would be from a communication perspective for each scenario. So the first one is this, you're pitching for some work virtually and it's the first time that you're meeting the client. What would be your advice to make a great first impression? I would do my homework. I would really, really find out about that client, find out about their business, if you can do, who else they work with, the individual that you're meeting as well as the organisation, because business relationships are based on trust. And rather like that pitch that I did last year where I found out that the lady that I was speaking to had studied in this private university in the US, that built up the business relationship moved it forward very very quickly so do your homework find out random things about them where do they live which university they went to do they have any hobbies go through their LinkedIn profile not to stalk them but to really find out some information the next one is this I'm attending a meeting online from a dress code perspective what are the things that I should be thinking about because it feels to me Everyone's got a lot more casual over the last 12 months for good or for bad. What would be your advice from an attire perspective? It depends on the industry. Of course, if it was accountancy, one of the more traditional professional services, I would go down the line of suit and tie if you're a gentleman. If you're a woman, smart jacket or dress. But... You're absolutely right. People are dressing down more. Think about who your client is. I mean, I wouldn't dress like this if I was meeting virtually the CEO of a big organisation that I really wanted to impress. But also think of your background as well. Lastly, I probably have five or six people working for me now that I've never met in person. And all of that was conducted online, all of the interview process. So you've got a virtual interview. How do you keep your nerves in check? Virtual interviews are the thing now, aren't they? Particularly having virtual videos as well. Now, for any listener who's going to go for an interview, it would be worthwhile sending a minute's video of you chatting and being yourself and saying why you would like to apply for this job because a lot of people aren't doing that and immediately you stand out. But with virtual Everything that you would do if you were meeting somebody face-to-face for an interview. You turn up early. You make sure that you've had some water, that you perhaps do some stretching so that you feel relaxed, that you've done your preparation, that you know about some questions you can ask in an interview because it's just the same as a job interview face-to-face. 
Great advice, Susan. And now I am delighted to welcome Law Creatives' Emily Winter. Emily is one of our awesome performance marketing managers working on a variety of global pay-per-click campaigns. Welcome, Emily. Thank you, Brett. Emily, in our current media landscape, would you rather be a human or a robot? <laughs> it's such a funny question. and it's, it's actually something that we hear quite a lot. There are so many articles that now claim that machines are better at humans at 80% of the things that we do day to day and it's not entirely accurate and I think it feeds into some sort of myth that we seem to be at war with technology but in saying that I think I'd always have to go with human all the way and to put it simply no matter how good automation AI gets the one thing that they will never have is empathy creativity or emotion as as we do as humans I think if robots start developing a heart, then maybe that'll be when we need to worry. <laughs> then we're all in trouble. Yeah, exactly. Brilliant. Well, look, welcome. It's really nice to have you on. So why do you think there's such a fear around or fear or stigma of automation in PPC? Yeah, it's again a really, really strong question on that. And there's no denying that technology and automation are impacting our everyday life. You go into your supermarkets now and it seems to be more and more that the checkouts are being replaced by your self-serve scans. And even Amazon now has developed a supermarket that you don't even need the self-checkout. You simply walk out of the store and it knows what you've taken from the shelves and put back and it works that way. And changes are not a natural part of life. And I think what's really important is that automation is to be embraced and not feared. At the time when automation started coming around, it was definitely something that a lot of marketeers feared because we simply didn't know how far it was going to be. And Google as a platform, we felt like they were coming up with these automated tools and features to replace us. We thought they were making it a lot easier for advertisers with smaller budgets to come in and they were making these smart campaigns. And, and at the time... I really felt like it was here to replace my job. And over the years, I actually realised that what they were developing and all of these new campaigns were actually here to make our jobs easier. So it wasn't a sense of they're here to take our job. It was more of, okay, how can we help you with your day-to-day management of all of these campaigns? So it sounds like automation's there to really do the ground work and the the kind of more menial tasks so that we can focus on the cool stuff that we enjoy and the the strategy definitely and and that is something to keep in mind with automation is that there will be some things that automation just can't touch but the be all and end all of it is that yeah if we're not focusing on these tedious time-consuming tasks then ultimately we're going to be able to develop a stronger and more mindful strategy to the clients That's a really good point. And I'm sure some people won't necessarily be aware of automation in pay-per-click, but give me a few examples of, of the types of automation that are available. When you're starting off with automation, the best place to start is to think where most of your time is wasted right now. Once you begin to accept where it is that you're spending most of your time there will be some sort of script or automated rule out there that you can apply to your campaigns to make your job a lot easier. And some of the ones that I use day to day include automated rules to help with my bid management. If you're in those campaigns day in, day out, you know that 90% of your task is budget management, bid management. So a lot of the automated rules you can actually bring in now to tell Google, okay, well, 
if this happens, use that as your signal to then dictate my bid management on that. You've also got custom alerts. So the bigger the accounts get, the less time you actually have to dive really deep within them. So custom alerts you can put in place to signal when your CPA is too high, you might not know it, but Google is there to go, oh, actually, within the last seven days, this has happened and we want you to look at this. You've then got your scripts and I think scripts is really where it can get technical. And to be honest with you, I don't spend too much time developing the scripts, but ultimately you can just copy and paste them (laughs) straight into Google Ads. It really does blow my mind when you think of how powerful a small script can be, a bit of coding. I worked with a client previously that was very seasonal. They were very weather dependent, an e-commerce client. So what I was able to do was to find this script that basically increased or decreased your bids based on the weather. It took in the weather API. So, you know, when you're thinking about barbecues or furniture, we noticed that performance massively differed. If it was raining like it has been this month, then people aren't going to go out and buy them. And it can change by the hour. So what the script would do is pull in that weather API and then automatically dictate what your bid should be so that your ads are more prominent at a certain time. And then on top of that, I think as a summary on on types of PPC automation, you've then got something as simple as your dashboard, you know, a nice, easy way for clients to be able to see that information that you're getting for the month in, month out. It can be really confusing. The Google interface itself is hard for me to navigate and I've been doing this for six years. With Data Studio, you're able to develop a really nice, sleek dashboard and give that to your clients and they're able to go in and see all of the top level KPIs at their fingertips, really. That's just some of the PPC automation types that I think in terms of day-to-day use, they come in the most useful to me. That's really helpful and really good advice. I just wanted to touch on a couple of points there. So you talk about scripts and obviously you're using those scripts and they might not necessarily have been written by you. Mm -hmm. So how do you test that those scripts are doing what they should be doing? I would imagine that there are probably some scripts out there that maybe don't do what they should do and that could be problematic. I lean a lot on companies such as Brain Labs and all of these that put scripts that are ready for you to use. Google Ads actually has its own section. It's called the Ad Diagnosis Tool, which allows you to go in and edit and preview a script. So you copy it in, you then test it, and it basically pulls back all of the changes it would make if that script was live in the account. So you can test it, tweak it. If it's not quite right, then you have to sort of go back and A reason why people are really scared of using scripts is because it is time consuming. Again, you have to have that time to invest it into finding scripts that work for you. And if they don't, going back to the beginning. And I think when your hand's in deep within the account, our time is taken up really quickly and it's not always easy to find that time. Yeah, it's simply a matter of trial and error, really. But I imagine if you are using automation successfully, that probably gives you a bit more time to do cool stuff like that. Exactly. And I think you put all of this effort in at the beginning and it might feel like it's consuming a lot of your day-to-day time, especially putting it into internal. You sort of feel like it's taking it away from clients, even though it's for your clients. But I think once you begin to see those scripts in place and the performance that comes with them, you sort of feel relieved that you put all that time and effort into developing them. Going back to the dashboards as well. So dashboards are really integral to everything we do because they show the results, 
clients love them because mm-hmm. they can see you know what's working what's not working how much time does that save once they're set up it's a really good question Data Studio is a great tool. It's free to use. Obviously, there are certain add-ons. So the more complex the client is, dependent on the data they want to see. So when you're starting to look at an omni-channel approach that incorporates social, paid, organics, SEO, that's when it tends to get a little bit harder because Google likes to favor their own. So anything Google-related, you can pull into the Data Studio dashboard with ease. But again, it's really good even to the point of Google Sheets. You can incorporate data like that. It really just depends on what the client wants to see. And then it is, again, trial and error. But once you have that dashboard, it's bespoke to the client. We brand it with the client's colouring, logo. And to be honest, it's really nice to get a back and forth because each of our clients, they do feel like it's tailored to them. You ask them, what are your main KPIs that you want to see? And they can get a back and forth with you like, oh, I'd like to see that there or this moved or this KPI. And you can do it for them with ease. And I think that's really nice for the client to feel that this is theirs and you're doing this for them. It's not just a copy and paste job throughout it. And it does save a lot of time, although it is completely bespoke to the client. Once you have that template, it is a matter of moving it around and branding. So I think overall, if you take into account normal reporting with a standard PowerPoint presentation, I would say it would take me a day, maybe two days, because a lot of it's spent manual data pulling. You're looking in Google Ads, typing it into your PowerPoint, then you've got to double check it all. Whereas with Data Studio, it connects straight up to Google Ads, so you don't have to do any of that manual aspect. As an agency, we talk a lot about core activities and context activities, where core are the things that really push the needle on client KPIs and the context is the stuff around it that you kind of have to do to get there but I imagine the more of the context activities we can automate the better that is for the core activities and the more time we can spend. Definitely and I've noticed myself since being here at law even adapting this new reporting process that we've applied I've definitely noticed how much time I've been able to save month on month particularly with one of my clients where they've got social they've got paid and all of those required sort of separate bits in your PowerPoint but it was a part of an absolute beast of a PowerPoint whereas you compile it down to one or two sheets all of the data is imported automatically and I've definitely noticed that actually we can save that time and now I can use that time to go back into okay well we've got the insights actually what do those insights now tell us instead of spending hours typing in data into PowerPoint what I'm now focusing on on is what that data tells me and how I can use that data the next month to make my campaigns better. Some of the campaigns that we work on would fall into a lead gen category. Mm -hmm. Some would be e-commerce. Where do you think lies the most opportunity to take advantage of automation between lead gen and e-commerce? It's a bit of a difficult question, this one. And I think The really good thing with law is that it's given me more lead gen exposure. My background is predominantly retail. When you're looking or working with a really big retail client, you're always going to think there's more opportunity there purely because, you know, you could be working with someone that each of their products requires its own strategy, own ads. And when you think what retail opportunity there is, it is really impressive in terms of dynamic remarketing. And I think the way the PPC world is going is definitely more personalised. You know, what what is it that makes someone click on one of these ads? And I think that's the tone of voice. And when you're able to start 
personalizing these ads to localization or certain things that they've already browsed upon then that's where e-commerce gets really really interesting and and something else that I touched on earlier is the weather API and all of those I think are much more complex than your standard lead gen but in saying that there could be a lot more out there for lead gen. So Emily as an agency we're very fortunate to work with some really nice big clients and they've got some good budgets and that means that we can spend a lot of time working through campaigns and bringing your expertise and and our other colleagues and and some automation too but for smaller companies that have smaller budgets and might not be able to work with agencies what's your advice to them? With any sort of local business that might not have any of this big budget that we see with some of our other clients, a really great place to start is the new smart campaigns that Google released. They started bringing those out a couple of years ago now and and that's when we sort of started to worry we felt like we were being pushed out but it was actually the gateway for smaller advertisers that weren't as fortunate as some of our other clients to start taking advantage of those. Now they can work really really well for you if you're just starting out with a campaign you don't really know what audiences work well for you. I think I'm going to take the example of a smart display campaign. If I was to set up a a standard display campaign I might want to incorporate my ad groups to include affinity audiences, in-market audiences, topics, custom audiences. And again, I've always been fortunate that the budgets would dictate my campaign structure. But when you're working with a smaller budget, if you try to apply that standard campaign, Google almost panics in a way of, okay, I've got this budget, I need to try and split it out evenly, but what if performance from this ad group is better? So what a smart campaign basically does is it utilizes automated targeting. So from my point of view, it's difficult because you're not able to see a lot of the data that I would be able to if I was to set up a standard campaign. But ultimately, the performance is sort of still the same in that it's easy to set up. You're still able to see the top level KPIs. But when it comes to then say, if you wanted to refine your display campaign with a smart campaign, it's a lot harder to do so. So if you're looking at the optimizations I might make to a standard display campaign, it will always include looking at pausing audiences that aren't working well for me so that I can reinvest that budget back into areas of the account that I know are strong performing. Whereas with a smart campaign, what you're essentially saying is, hey, Google, I've got this budget. Spend it how you like. And I always say to all my clients, just be careful because what Google recommends, and it's very pushy, We're even in the recommendations tab in Google Ads now, they are still very pushy on their target ROAS bidding and What Google wants is not necessarily what is best for the actual individual client. It's always sort of, well, what's going to get Google the most money? (laughs) (laughs) So it sounds like those sorts of campaigns are are great for smaller clients who maybe don't have the expertise or the budget. They, of course, will perform, but maybe not necessarily drive the insights that you might need you know, to really get it under the skin of your customers. That's exactly right. And I think if we look even at search, search is a really good one because you want to be able to understand the intent. And one of the features within a search campaign is your search terms report. I spend day in, day out analysing my search terms and what we've actually paid for. Because obviously with PPC, you pay per click. Okay, well, what are people searching for that then leads them to click on my ad? With a smart search campaign, Google will tell you that you got a click, 
but it won't tell you where that click came from. So when you're analyzing, search terms report are really good for me because it also allows me to add negative keywords in. So for example, even if we take this podcast room, what you might want to appear for is things podcast related, but not music, a lot of like podcast hire. And so I would put that into my negative keyword list to say to Google, don't show my ad if music appears in the query. Whereas yeah, smart search, you sort of put it back to Google to say, okay, well, if that didn't lead to a conversion this time, maybe it will next time, but you have no control over that. So it's just something to bear in mind that whilst I have tested both forms and when they were new and coming out, it was definitely something that I thought, hold on a second, I want to actually A-B test here so that I know within myself when I'm recommending to clients what to do. It was really interesting to see that actually, dependent on what your objective is, Smart campaigns can work really well for those with smaller budgets. So we've talked a lot about what automation can do, but what about what automation can't do currently? The most successful PPC advertisers will utilise the strengths of automation, but then use their own intelligence to actually take the results to the next level. And that's something that I touched on before, is that whilst you might have all of that data available to you, it's actually then how you use that data to better your performance. And while automation and machine learning allow for far smarter ad campaigns, they still need a well-considered human-approved strategy to actually deliver the results. So when it comes to PPC, I would probably say the things that automation will, I would hope, are never able to do is your top-line strategy. So there's no automation tool out there that I currently know of that can actually plan out the overarching strategy behind PPC campaigns. While automation can help with the strategy, only a human can actually plan out budgets and targeting in relation to your business offering and goals. Automation is nothing without the correct tracking in place. All of my campaigns, if I'm using target CPA, conversion tracking, maximize conversions, all of those are based on the conversion data in the account. Now, I have to manually require the developers to actually get that tracking on the website. Without that, The campaigns can't use that data to improve themselves. So that's another area that, you know, it could be something that they're working on right now. But I always feel that that will be one of the main pillars in something that automation won't be able to take over. And then what I was just talking about, the smart campaigns with the standard campaigns, split testing. Again, that's a really sort of human judgment where you can run two campaign types to see what the results are and how they differ and actually which one you then use moving forward. Google, whilst they do have things such as your responsive search ads now where you put multiple headlines in and Google is then actually able to dictate what headlines work well, which descriptions and what combination is your best performing one to then serve again and again. In terms of split testing at campaign or account level, I don't think there's anything out there just yet that can actually do that at that level. You've also got data interpretation. So all of the data, all of that lovely data, but without it, machine learning wouldn't exist. It still needs you to translate into return on investment for your client. You need to keep on top of your product margins, return on ad spend and larger business goals, making sure that all of this marketing activity is actually impacting your bottom line. So it sounds like, again, a lot of the more menial tasks are picked up by automation but for now at least from a strategic perspective and from a creative perspective and from an analysis perspective it still needs that human touch and human intervention what i find really interesting 
is that with Google, they're bringing in and pushing automation. But in doing so, the changes that get made have a massive impact on the things that we do, which requires a lot of human interaction to rectify. I know we had a, a situation recently where Google removed something called broad match modifier. And I just wondered if you could explain to the listeners what that is and what the effect was and what we had to do. With Google search, you have sort of layers to your keyword targeting. And that really dictates for me how I structure my account. So within my search campaigns, you can either set your match type at campaign level or you can set it further down at ad group level. So I will have specific ad groups called phrase, BMM and exact. And each of those match types offer different solutions for our clients. So for example, broad match modifier, you put a little plus in front of each of the words. And what you're saying to Google is, okay, well, if someone searches for something, I want these keywords with the pluses in front of them to definitely appear in that query. It doesn't matter which way they appear, but I'm telling you that it has to appear in their query. If you go for pure broad, which I've seen before, I've taken over accounts where even stuff like car parts if you're bidding on something like a ball joint and this is how technical google gets if you leave it on pure broad i've seen cases where ads are appearing for parts of a body where you've got ball joints in your body so the intent is really not clear there so then what you start to do is incorporate other match types like phrase and exact and ultimately what you're doing is narrowing down that pool so the intent gets greater the chance of a conversion is higher and you sort of start to define this sweet spot of an audience and ultimately over time you want to be pushing more and more towards that audience because you know it works for them and a few months ago google turned around and said actually we're going to remove broad match modifier now this is a match type what was quite good for it is that if you had quite low search volume in your exact and phrase ad groups, which is natural, there's not going to be as many people searching for those as there are with the longer queries. With Broadmatch, you were able to see other queries or other keywords or themes or topics that you might not have considered. And it was sort of keeping the door a little bit open for you. But with Google removing that, it was a real shake-up and if you were going to look at the setup that I had done with previous search campaigns that I have live running for other clients, it was a bit of a panic because I thought, right, I've got to actually go in there now and I've got to pause all of my broad match modifier ad groups or else they're going to act as competition for each other and sort of act as duplicates. So it required us to go in and, and change the whole way you know, I've been applying this strategy for ages and it's something that's been engraved in, in the way that we learn how to set up a campaign. So to have something taken away from us in an instant really goes to show the power that Google has. And obviously that needed a lot of your time and effort to rectify that and, yes. and work out a new strategy for that. <laughs> so in some ways, Google changing things so regularly, it almost requires more human interaction. Just some advice for listeners. Obviously, those changes happen a lot. Where do you get your information or how do you stay up to speed with, with all of those changes? I mean, I would like to say start your day as you mean to go on. <laughs> so every morning what I do, I have a nice cup of tea and I go on to search engine journal. And even, you know, if you follow the right people on LinkedIn, LinkedIn can be really useful because they take this information that's available to you on search engine land, search engine journal, and then they actually offer their opinion because 
there's only so much I can do by digesting this information passed on by Google, but how do I know before I recommend it to a client that it's going to be of any use? When it's such a new tool, you know, it's a really scary trial and error. Like, do I suggest it to a client to then actually make them invest in it now before I know anything? But what if it doesn't work? So LinkedIn, if you open it up, I find that it's like-minded individuals that actually give you this back and forth of, have you considered this? Or I heard this the other day. And actually, I think a combination of all of those platforms really helps me with guiding me on what I should be looking at next in terms of PPC. Really good advice. We've spoken a lot about automation We've spoken about the benefits, some of the negatives. We've talked about how human interaction is still at least (laughs) required for a while. So, Emily, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you, Emily and Susan, for your excellent and insightful contributions. Next time, one of our guests will be ex-adman and agency owner Morgan Howe. Morgan will be telling us how he turned his passion for music and art into a new and successful international business. And as always, there'll be more marketing tips to help you prosper. And finally, keep an eye out for our bonus episodes where I'll be looking in depth at the careers of some of the guests on our show. I'm Brett Samuels. This has been the Open Mic Marketing Podcast. Thanks for listening. See you next time.